This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon and welcome to the Saturday edition of the best of Fight Back from the week that was. There is now greater access for family members to visit their loved ones in Ontario's long-term care homes. As of Wednesday, new visitor rules went into effect with a goal to provide consistent guidelines at every home in the province. A resident may now name two caregivers who will be allowed access to the home without time limits. And if there is no COVID-19 outbreak, the caregivers may visit together. If there is an outbreak, they will need to visit separately. While filling in for Libby Snymer on Labor Day Monday, I was joined by our Zoomer squad to discuss the new development. David Kravit, Vice President at Zoomer Media, and Bill Van Gorder, Acting Chief Policy Officer at CARP, A New Vision of Aging. It is a good idea to loosen the restrictions. Our seniors and older adults in long-term care need that help and that contact. However, uh, it really pushes the problem down to the facilities that the government saying now we've opened it up but there's still no regular volunteers in long-term staff you know many long-term facilities had scores if not hundreds of other volunteers coming in to help them during a week we've still got overworked staff trying to deal both with visitors and with the uh, uh, the residents of, of the home so it really doesn't solve the overall problem of not having enough staff and services in the home to service the volunteers who want to go there, let alone the family members who are living in long-term care. Well, you bring up an excellent point. And on this Labor Day, uh, I'd like to put a spotlight on the PSWs and other staff at nursing homes, uh, long-term care homes across the province, seniors' residences as well. There's no doubt about it. They put their own health at risk by going in during the height of the pandemic to work, in some cases every day, because they saw the the increased need for their services, especially because family members weren't allowed to go inside. Uh, so I'm wondering if this has been the backdrop to the conversation. We haven't heard it publicly, David, from Premier Ford and his long-term care minister, but allowing family members inside uh, during a possible second wave will certainly alleviate the workload for the PSWs. Well, up, up to a point, and I think if that's the strategy, that like we don't have to adequately staff these places because the caregivers are going to come in, um, then that's, that, to me, seems like a very uh, risky strategy. And I wonder uh, how much uh, thought and planning is behind that, if that's really the actual strategy. They've had all kinds of time to find out exactly how many residents there are. It's a finite number. It's possible to find out how many caregivers exist for that population and what health they're in. Maybe they did do all that auditing. I rather doubt it. So I'm with Bill a little bit on this. It's kind of like, okay, we've loosened it up and uh, 
uh, fingers crossed. And if that's the case, I don't think that's good enough. No, I. but you know what? The cynic in me feels like <laughs> that, 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 that this is part of it, Bill, that they're thinking, okay, at least, you know, the, the population knows how to deal with a pandemic now. We know about masking. We know to be extra cautious. Uh, so why not let these people in who who are connected to their loved ones to to help out? Because we saw what the Canadian forces said about some of the nursing homes in this province. It was dismal. I'm afraid you're you're right. And you know, CARP has long been advocating for better better ratios of qualified staff in long term care homes, and the curve is heading up uh, across the country, almost everywhere. It's not like uh, COVID. Uh, Numbers are, are going down in some areas. They're higher than they have been for weeks, if not months. CARP has been saying we have to increase the number of staff caring for residents. We have to ensure an appropriate mix of staff. And that's one that's being uh, overlooked. In fact, Marissa Lennox, our chief policy officer, said that the problems impeding long-term care are interconnected and need to be addressed systematically. We don't think for the safety of residents that coming along and for the good health of the staff that this current policy is being uh, uh, applied uh, appropriately. And CARP's really concerned about it. Bill Van Gorder, Acting Chief Policy Officer at CARP, and David Kravitz, Vice President at Zoomer Media. For more on CARP's efforts to improve long-term care, go to their website at carp.ca. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. On Tuesday, it was back to school in most districts across the province, although Toronto Public and Catholic students start going back this coming week. Parents continue to receive reassurance from Education Minister Stephen Lecce that Ontario's back-to-school plan is the best in the country. He certainly sounds convincing, but there are still many critics who say the physical distancing rules that apply to the rest of the province should apply to the elementary school classrooms as well. While filling in for Libby, our Tuesday strategy panelists join me to discuss. John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner at Fleischman Hillard High Road, Charles Bird, Managing Principal of Earnscliffe Strategy Group in Toronto, and Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village. Recognizing the need to get kids back to school was so important for so many reasons, but how that was communicated and the, 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 the plan that evolved, I think, did create confusion for parents and educators, which caused, um, I think, some anxiety that maybe didn't need to be, people didn't need to be as anxious if there had been actually a, a, a plan before just the announcement. Right, and if everybody was sending the same message, Correct. depending on which side of the political spectrum they're on. Uh, what do you think about that, Charles? I, I would agree with Karen. I mean, the, the flow of information has been haphazard from time to time. Uh, there's been uh, a Big, big changes in the landscape as to how schools were going to reopen. Uh, teachers, principals, parents were kept largely in the dark. Um, now, I, I have to cut the government a little bit of slack here because, I mean, the, the situation is, is, is a fluid one. It's a, it's a tricky one. Some degree of flexibility would be required. Uh, but over uh, just the last couple of weeks, we've seen 47 schools in Quebec that have seen COVID outbreaks uh, between August 26th and September 3rd. Uh, 
And, you know, there is every reason to expect that we could we could be looking at a very similar, if not worse, scenario in Ontario schools. Add to Add to that the fund that we've had 375 new cases in Ontario over the last 48 hours, 108 in Toronto, 105 in Peel region. So that's suggesting that we're seeing community spread in um, areas where population density is uh, is fairly intense. And testing is still not where it needs to be six months into the pandemic. We're barely topping $20,000. 20,000 tests a day. We need, for purposes of tracing, and, and uh, we need to be at over 40, we need to be at over 30,000 per day. And we're just not there yet. It's been, it's just been a perennial struggle. John, what about you in terms of how the message has been communicated? I mean, I have to give Stephen Lecce credit. He speaks incredibly well and his, his message, I do find it reassuring, but it, it, but you also know that he's a government minister and he is touting what the PCs, uh, are, are planning or not planning. Uh, so in terms of how parents should feel with his message, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I'm not. I'm not there yet with the uh, with Charles's doom and gloom uh, portrayal of how things going. There's no question that there still remains challenges, and and you know I think that that testing is is increasing as much as they can, and and we're doing as as, as well as we possibly can be uh, as as a province, as a jurisdiction, but certainly as a country. I think we've we've fared considerably well because of uh, in large part because of the the teamwork that has been going on and the uh, the cross jurisdictional and cross political, you know, cooperation that's been going on. So I think that from that perspective, I'm, I'm optimistic that, that things are, are going well. Uh, as for school, look, you know, there's no question that, that it remains a fluid situation. And, and the, the minister had to deal with an overwhelming response from parents who wanted their kids back to school and wanted some normalcy for them, uh, not only for those parents who can go back to work, but also for, for kids who are, uh, as Karen was saying, we're just getting, we're struggling with, with the COVID and being isolated and, and having some level of normalcy and going back to school and seeing kids and, and I think is, is smart and it's good and it's healthy. That said, the premier's always made a note of saying, look, we're, we don't know what we don't know. He's gone by every um, rule that, that the health authorities have given him with respect to schools and how to deal with it and how to, how to approach it. They've got, they've spent a lot of money making sure that there's a lot of PPEs, that there's a lot of resources that the teachers and schools have. And the problem, I think, from the very beginning, Jane, has always been that you've had the unions who, from the very beginning, they just not want, did not want kids to go back to school. And they had an issue with it. They never liked the fact that the premier and, and the minister of education said early on that we're going to get kids back to school. They've been fighting it. Uh, and, you know, I always say, look, let's look, look back to to March and April, the height of the pandemic, when no one knew anything about this virus and how bad it was going to be and where we were, we were going to go back then. And grocery stores and other, you know, essential services, you know, leaned in and, and sort of, you know, played it by ear and, and went and did what they could to make sure things went. And we had uh, amazing, you know, stories about how grocery stores were allowing, you know, people to, uh, to come in and, and make sure that the, the shelves were stocked and all that kind of stuff. And he's asking the same with teachers. You know, look, we don't know what's going to happen, but if we all play our part and we're safe and we're careful, uh, they're going to be monitoring this on a day-to-day basis. So if something happens, I know that the government will react accordingly. But they've done everything they could by way of trying to follow the uh, health authorities to try to make sure school is back and, and, and some level of normalcy. So I give them credit for that. 
John Capobianco, Senior VP and Senior Partner at Fleischman Hillard High Road, Charles Bird, Managing Principal of Earnscliff Strategy Group in Toronto, and Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, Fight Back's Tuesday Strategy Panel. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. We received some unsettling news this past Tuesday when it was announced the daily COVID-19 numbers in Ontario had jumped significantly to 190 on Sunday and 185 on Labor Day Monday. Canada's Chief Public Health Officer, Dr. Theresa Tam, is also expressing her concern about the rising numbers, suggesting Canadians are not being vigilant enough. Is this the beginning of the so-called second wave? I asked that question of infectious disease specialist and epidemiologist Dr. Alon Vaisman and Dr. Ray Dianandan, epidemiologist and associate professor in the Faculty of Health Sciences at the University of Ottawa. The second wave verbiage terminology is a little problematic. I like to think of it as one big wave sweeping across the world with different characteristics in different parts of the world. And what we see here is a resurgence. The disease never went away. There's nothing particularly seasonal about it. This is all about human behaviors. What we're seeing is the results of people being too social. And it's entirely in our power to get the numbers down again. Let's see if we can. Well, that that's my next question. In terms of what's going on, you say it's that people are letting up their guard as opposed to the virus becoming more insidious. Yeah, 100%. So this virus we do not think have, has a seasonal aspect to it, except to the extent that high humidity means lesser transmission because the droplets far faster, fall faster. rather. This is about people interacting. There's no mystery here. The virus doesn't walk into your house on its own. It's carried by people. So the more that people interact, especially in large indoor gatherings, the more that we have people running inside because the weather gets bad, the more that we have institutions opening like schools, we're going to see an increase in numbers. So it's incumbent upon each of us to maintain these basic public health uh, restrictions like distancing and mask wearing and avoiding large gatherings. Dr. Vaisman, are you in agreement with that? Yeah, that's absolutely true. Uh, when you think about what uh, what's going on in Ontario, we're looking at phase three that was opened up around six weeks ago now. So we, what, what we might be seeing now is a downstream consequence of what happens when you open up in phase three. That doesn't mean that it was a foregone conclusion that we would have a rise in cases but it could mean that there is a laxity in people's adherence to public health recommendations. And also uh, people are, as, as was mentioned, now it's getting a little bit cooler. People are now going to be more indoors as schools are opening up. So these are things that are going to collide and potentially lead to a, a surge in cases in the near future. Well, in terms of why we went to phase three, as you mentioned about six weeks ago, um, you know, you wonder... We needed to do that for the economy, but at the same time, if the result is that people get more relaxed, we really are not fighting the virus as effectively as we could have, Dr. Ray, had we stayed in phase two. I don't think we could have stayed in phase two. I don't think the population would have tolerated it as well. Opening up when it was safe to do so, like in the hot summer months when people have the opportunity to go outside was important. It also gave us an opportunity to try out some things, to test out some theories and hypotheses. I don't, I don't think we use that opportunity as much as we should have, especially around how to deploy uh, resources around school openings. We could have tried out some things in summer camps. We didn't do that, but that was the time to do it. So I'm glad that we took that chance. Now I hope that we roll back some aspects of that plan, in particular, 
bars and nightclubs, uh, places where really social interaction is a luxury, not a necessity, because everything matters now. We have to keep the economy open, which means making some tough choices going forward. Dr. Vaisman, perhaps um, as Dr. Dianandin is suggesting, the guidelines aren't restrictive enough with in terms of bars and gyms and weddings and whether they're indoors or outdoors. Is it time to pull back a little bit? Yeah, that's exactly how we should be approaching the problem is that when we went from lockdown towards relaxing restrictions, they went in the phase approach of one, two, three. And now that the cases are rising again, there's going to have to be a decision made about when you pull that trigger and then go backwards on the phases again. And I think the important thing for the public to realize is that this is going to be a dynamic approach. Uh, it's going to come and go. We're going to have to relax and then restrict so that we uh, do our best to protect the public. So if the cases do continue to rise in the, very, in the near future, then that trigger is going to have to be pulled and we're going to have to restrict some of those social activities. Um, but still with the messaging being important about this is, uh, this is what we have to do in the short term to protect people in the long term and that it'll be a constantly, uh, it'll be a situation that's in constant flex. We'll have to go backwards and forwards with this to make sure everyone's safe. Infectious disease specialist and epidemiologist Dr. Alon Vaisman and Dr. Ray Dianandin, epidemiologist and associate professor in the Faculty of Health Sciences at the University of Ottawa. This is the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. We've talked a number of times on Fight Back about how COVID-19 has affected cancer patients waiting for diagnoses and treatment. The 80,000 Canadians living with bladder cancer are among them. And that's why funding toward this year's Bladder Cancer Awareness Walk is more important than ever. Longtime listeners to Zoomer Radio will know that I'm an advocate for Bladder Cancer Canada in memory of my mom, Sandy, who died with the disease in 2012. Primarily driven by volunteers, Bladder Cancer Canada continues to fund much-needed research and provide much-needed support for bladder cancer patients. Ferg Devins is the chair of Bladder Cancer Canada. He's also a survivor. Dr. Alex Lada is director of uro-oncology at Mount Sinai Hospital, a professor at the University of Toronto, and a member of Bladder Cancer Canada's Medical Research Board. Doctors Lada began our discussion by talking about the most devastating form of bladder cancer. Muscle invasive bladder cancer is a, a disease which I often call the tigers. The disease goes basically into the muscle, and the disease has got the ability to go into the muscle. Unfortunately, like for your mom, Jane, it has also the ability at one point to leave the bladder and become right. really life-threatening. That's really the issue. And sadly enough, still in 2020, about 20 to 30% of men and women present with that advanced disease, mainly because many don't have the first line or neglect the first line. And I have to say that, unfortunately, we've seen recently a couple of, of people who were waiting for COVID times to get better and then kind of buried their head in the, into the sands. They did see some blood, but they didn't uh, uh, consult uh, quickly enough. So I think at any time when you see blood in the urine or you see major changes or pain when urinating, you have to consult. So you go through your doctor first, your family doctor, and you insist to see a urologist so you can rule out bladder cancer. Is that how it works? Absolutely. And don't lose time. I think 
as the um, the ads in, in the subway uh, were were promoting, uh, when you see red on the ye- yellow lemon, that's clearly the sign to consult right away. Ferg, uh, 100%, and this always impresses me about Bladder Cancer Canada, 100% of the money raised for the walk goes to the cause, research and patient support. Talk about how unique that is and how Bladder Cancer Canada is able to do this. Thankfully for our organization, all of our staff work from home. Uh, they, they have virtual offices. And so we had that before COVID. So we were ahead of that curve, certainly, with respect to serving our patient community. And if somebody has bladder cancer, has just been diagnosed with bladder cancer, uh, you would encourage them to get in touch with Bladder Cancer Canada to receive that kind of support. Absolutely. And and on our website, bladdercancercanada.org, we have a number of resources. We have patient guidebooks on there that are downloadable, or we can print them and send them to patients. There's a discussion forum on that website where if someone would like to participate in conversations with anonymity, they can. They can get in there. They can talk to other patients that have been along this journey. In fact, I had a friend of mine in Calgary refer a friend of his who is now a patient um, and is going to uh, lose his bladder. He's going to have a radical cystectomy. So he's looking to talk to somebody about what those options are for him because there are a number of options. Let me ask you this, Ferg. Why, why is raising money for research for bladder cancer being left up to survivors and family and friends of survivors? Why is the federal government not stepping up and doing more? Well, there's just there's just so much competition in this space, um, and you know it's 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 thanks to uh, donors, thanks to supporters across the country, thanks to a number of pharma companies that uh, help us along the way with donations and support for our programs. Jane, uh, we're able to provide these these services to our patient community. Uh, you know, love to think that we could have governments stepping up uh, and 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 pouring dollars in. And when you hear doctors lotta talk about new research and new immunotherapy and new opportunity for treatment that's on the horizon. You just think, man, if we could just have, you know, a significant amount of support, we may actually be able to fund these researchers. A lot of them who are world-leading researchers right here in Canada find that cure. Ferg Devins is a bladder cancer survivor and the chair of Bladder Cancer Canada. Dr. Alex Lada is director of uro-oncology at Mount Sinai Hospital, a professor at the University of Toronto and a member of Bladder Cancer Canada's Medical Research Board. If you'd like to sponsor my team in this year's virtual bladder cancer awareness walk, go online to zoomerradio.ca, click on the link and follow the prompts. And thank you. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. We've gone through the audio. Here are some of the best calls of the past week. Barry in North York phoned to talk about the bars being open during COVID-19. A number of the cases, correct me if I'm wrong, are happening in bars, and rightly so because, you know, people drunk and they don't, as, as has been said by uh, experts, um, when people have drinking, they're drinking, their inhibitions go out the window, so the masks go off and everything else. So right. why doesn't the premier close the bars down? And now... 
Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week comes from Sherry in Toronto, who's worked in nursing homes before and during the pandemic. I am a certified PSW for about eight and a half years now. And things that I have seen um, in nursing homes is just unbelievable. The things that I've reported, it, 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 it's very upsetting what I have seen. Um, the lack of care, the neglect, the overworked PSWs, um, the lack of supplies. It's about time that our government is finally opening their eyes and realizing the reality of this situation. You don't see any difference now that we're six months into this pandemic. You don't see any difference in improved care, especially in light of uh, the horrific situation with the deaths back in the spring. I don't see any great um, improvement. No, I really don't. That does it for today's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby and have your say anytime on our Fight Back voicemail at 416 416- 367-9636-416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.